Support for Innovation Hub comes from Bunker Hill Community College Compelling Conversation Series with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar on Religious Intolerance, October 26th. You can register at bhcc.edu cc. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Almost 20 years ago now, a work of social science unexpectedly became a bestseller. The book was called Bowling Alone, and its author, Robert Putnam, argued that the structures in American society had been breaking down for decades. We were moving into separate orbits, involved in our communities less, bowling to religious groups less often, and yes, we were going bowling alone. For the last 20 years, the institutions that bind us together have become even less important to a lot of Americans. More of us say that we don't trust our fellow Americans who we elected to lead us. More Americans have moved away from religion. If once we were bowling alone, maybe we've moved now into a world where we don't even bother heading to a central location for bowling. Maybe online bowling is good enough. The problem is that there are all sorts of consequences for the fact that we're breaking apart. And one of the most important ones is loneliness. Dhruv Kumar sees the medical implications of loneliness as a physician at New York Presbyterian Hospital. He's also a contributor to The New York Times. And John Cassiopo has studied loneliness for decades. He's a professor of psychology and director of the Center for Cognitive and Social Neuroscience at the University of Chicago. Welcome to you both. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So, uh, Dhruv, just give me a sense, as a practicing physician, Tell me what you're seeing in terms of the effect of isolation and loneliness um, in patients that you treat. Sure. Well, there's uh, obviously a lot of research and a growing body of research now that suggests that social isolation and loneliness has all sorts of negative health consequences. But what really got me interested in the topic was the stories of the patients that I was seeing on a day-to-day basis. And you really see when you're in the hospital, when you're in the clinic, how socially isolated a lot of these people are, whether it's someone who doesn't have a ride home after a colonoscopy, or it's uh, some of our patients that are struggling with opioid addiction and no longer have uh, friends and family that are supporting them, older people who are in um, apartments uh, isolated that they're unable to clean, unable to care for themselves. These are things that as doctors, as other clinicians, nurses, we see every day, and it's a kind of a really sad uh, consequence of, I think, what's happening on a broader scale in our society, and, and we see kind of the end result in the emergency departments and the clinics and in the hospitals. Can you remember, like, a specific case um, that you had that either, like, you stopped a colleague, you know, in the hall afterwards and was like, whoa, I've, like, I've got to tell you about this, or, you know, you wrote about it, or, or whatever? Sure. Um, well, one of the cases that really struck me and I felt really compelled to, to write about in an article a few months ago was a patient at the end of his life. And he was a patient that uh, was very ill, and it was clear that he'd be passing away in the next uh, either few hours, few days, a week at most. And mm. one of the things I asked him was, you know, did he have anyone that he wanted to see, anyone that I should call to make sure that he was able to see a family member or a close friend uh, before he passed away? Uh, and he told me he didn't have anyone, not a single person in this world that he wanted to see before uh, he passed away. And that uh, was kind of the most acute um way that I'd Hmm. seen this play out, and it really struck me, and it was a really uh, sad moment for for the patient, and I think uh, for for all those caring for him as well. Hmm. 
Um, John, Drew talked about uh, the implications of loneliness for our health. In recent decades, what have we come to understand about the impact that loneliness has on us um, health-wise? Well, we know from a variety of longitudinal studies now that loneliness above and beyond uh, objective isolation uh, predicts early morbidity mortality. Uh, it's a 26% increase in the odds of uh, premature mortality. Uh, that's about the same effect size as chronic obesity. So that's, a, that's quite a, a, a large uh, effect. We also know that the prevalence of people who feel lonely all the time is 5 to 10%. Uh, and people who are struggling with loneliness at least some of the time uh, adds another 30 to 40 percent of our mm-hmm. population. So it's it's a condition whose prevalence also matches uh, chronic obesity now. It, when you talk about obesity as being, um, you know, similar to loneliness in, in terms of um, its effects, I mean, maybe it's just me, but I feel like obesity gets way more airtime in the media in terms of I think people would be far more concerned about obesity um, and becoming obese and its effect on their health than they would about loneliness. Do you think that's true? I do. Um, Research suggests that loneliness is stigmatized. People have a misconception of loneliness. Um, They tend to think of it as a loner or someone who has poor social skills. And our population-based research has shown that's not the case, that um, when you look at a random sample of Americans, loneliness can befall anyone. And it used to be characterized, even in the scientific literature, as a f- state with no redeeming features. And we now know uh, that's not the case. It's actually uh, part of our biological warning machinery that helps us protect our social body, which we need to survive and prosper. Hmm. Well, and since the 80s or the 90s, when people really started using computers, um, obviously a lot more than they had before, have we seen a major uptick in uh, loneliness? It really depends on how the digital media are being used. Uh, social networking is, is a tool, just like driving a car is a tool. If you use social media uh, as a destination, uh, you spend your days tending the friends uh, that you have online. It's been shown to increase loneliness, increase depression. Uh, If instead it's used as a way station, as a means of uh, maintaining connections and promoting, uh, leveraging face-to-face interactions, it's actually associated with a decrease. So there's not much of a net change as, as a result of social media. But what you do see is, unfortunately, people who feel lonely more likely to then uh, migrate to social media as a destination, uh, making their loneliness uh, worse and, and more chronic. Hmm. I wonder how much people in the medical community talk about this. Uh, in 2016, the Surgeon General shockingly said, this is a quote, we are facing an epidemic of loneliness and social isolation. That almost doesn't seem like something a Surgeon General would talk about, but he did. Um, so is this something that doctors talk about that is thought about enough? I think 
the medical profession is increasingly recognizing that this is a real problem. And traditionally, things like spiritual well-being, emotional well-being have not been part of what we've been thinking about, what we've been researching, what we've been trying to address. And so uh, I think we're starting to turn the corner. People are starting to talk more about it. We certainly see this every day uh, when we're when we're working with patients, but it's not something we've really dedicated a lot of resources to addressing just yet. And I think mm. some very small steps could be helpful here. I think the first step is just to screen patients when we're talking to them uh, in the clinic or in the hospital for whether they are isolated and uh, and lonely. So we screen people for all sorts of things. We screen them for cancer. We screen them uh, for depression. Um, I think the next step is to screen people with one, two, or three questions uh, about whether they're socially isolated. Do they have someone that they can talk about uh, important things with? Do they have someone to give them a ride home uh, if they're having a medical procedure? procedure. Just a few questions could get us a long way to identifying who might need a little bit more help and who we could help connect with other people. This is Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller, and I'm talking with Dhruv Kumar, a contributor to the New York Times and a physician at New York Presbyterian Hospital, and John Cassiopo, a psychology professor and the director of the Center for Cognitive and Social Neuroscience at the University of Chicago. So, Dhruv, is there anything that you or other doctors that you know have actually done to make people feel less lonely? Um, I mean, like when that situation arises where somebody says, I don't have anybody to pick me up from a colonoscopy. And obviously for everybody who has undergone that procedure, that is one of the questions they ask you. You cannot drive yourself home. So, like, who's picking you up? Right. Well, I, I would say a few things. The first is that, unfortunately... Often in the hospital, our focus is uh, very medical. And so the things that we're doing, given the time pressures, given the pressure to be efficient, we're very focused on what procedure we're going to be doing, uh, what drug we're ordering, how we're going to treat this person medically. And one of the things that, one of the shifts that I would like to see happen is trying to uh, get students, residents, faculty to step back and uh, have uh, kind of the, the insight and the time and, and create the time to really uh, be with people and, and to reconceptualize what it means to be efficient in the hospital, not just um, by how many procedures we do and how many drugs we do we 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 give, but um, how we're able to to connect with people, recognizing that that is an important part of um, uh, the therapy that they receive. The other thing that I would say is that, you know. As we're recognizing that social isolation is important for all sorts of things, whether people are depressed, their cardiovascular health, whether they take their medications, uh, that is a really important insight in the next wave of, of the way that we care for people. And by recognizing that uh, if we're treating people's loneliness, if we're treating their social isolation, we're also treating all the other uh, health things that come uh, as a consequence of being socially isolated. It's a really important financial case to invest more heavily in uh, reducing social isolation. Hmm. Uh, John, can you tell me about loneliness at different points in our lives? Like when we are, when are we most susceptible to being lonely? When are people most commonly saying that they are alone, that they're just like, either that I mean, they don't have to be alone and that there's no other people, but that they feel alone. All right. There's a couple points across one's lifespan where you're more likely to be going through upheavals of uh, your social world, your social relationships, um, puberty, uh, going off to college, 
um, being coming an empty nester, divorce, uh, bereavement, and very late life in adulthood. Those are the uh, some of the events across a lifespan that predict an increase in, in loneliness. And are there um, areas in there that you've seen really change since you've been measuring this, which you said has been like about 20 years, but not quite? One of the areas uh, we saw change was uh, 2008 when there was the market upheaval and people uh-huh. were uh, pressed into more difficult circumstances. Um, we we found uh, some of the we have a longitudinal study that was going on. We found some of the individuals spending more time working, not too surprisingly, uh, and less time enjoying uh, time with their family and friends. And it turns out that we often think you know being there in difficult times is an important part of friendships and family, and that's true. But we underestimate the importance of sharing good times mm-hmm. with friends and family, and those are being sacrificed. And individuals in our study um, started to appear at the dinner table, uh, feeling distant from their friends and family, uh, just as the family members felt distant from this breadwinner who was no longer you know, much of an active part of their lives. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of change uh, we have seen uh, as as there were economic upheavals over the last several um, years. Uh, Drew, you've written about a program called Link Ages that uh, Paul Tang at the Palo Alto Medical Foundation started. Tell me a little bit about that and why um, it gives you some hope for how we could deal with loneliness going forward. Sure. So the the program um, really capitalizes on this idea that what's important to a lot of people um, at the end of life, at the beginning of life, in the middle, is uh, being kind of a valued and contributing member of society, recognizing that everyone has something to offer, uh, whether that's something small or something large. And so this program works by uh, allowing members to post something online through the app that they need help with. And that could be any number of things. It could be they want uh, to learn how to play the guitar, or they want a Scrabble partner, they just need a ride hmm. to the doctor's office, uh, any of these things. And then another member might see that request and uh, volunteer to fill that need. And in the process, they bank a few hours, quote unquote, bank a few hours on the app um, for when they need something in return. And so one Mm. example that I give uh, in the article that I wrote recently was that a college student might see a post from an older man who needs help with gardening. And she goes over, she helps him plant a row of flowers. She gets two hours uh, in the bank. A couple months later, she wants help cooking uh, a nice dinner that she's never uh, tried to cook this type of meal before. Uh, A chef who's retired sees that post and then comes over and helps Mm. her uh, cook that. And so it's a way to connect people across uh, a community. And it has hundreds of members in in California now, and they're hoping to expand to other areas of the country as well. Um, But I really love the program because uh, it doesn't just stop at making connections online. It really fosters uh, a community by getting people together and recognizing that uh, everyone has something to offer, and it reaffirms that value in all people. It's interesting because it goes back in some ways to a village model. Like in a village, you might borrow some eggs from somebody kind of knowing that in the future, they're going to come by and borrow some flour from you. Like, you know, it's it'll even itself out in the end, kind of. 
Right, exactly. And I think that was one of the goals of the program. And I think, you know, one of the things that Dr. Tang told me was that one of the unfortunate things often in our kind of individualistic society is that you need excuses almost to knock on someone's door to mm-hmm. uh, to start up a conversation at this point. Uh, and he wants to get beyond that. He wants to make it so it's not such a big deal to just knock on your, your neighbor's door and to go across the street and ask for something. And uh, developing those connections again, I think, is really important. John, is there something we should do or we could do on a public policy level? Like a mayor could do, a governor could do, you know, uh, I mean, leaders in Washington could do. Um, Certainly there are. Uh, One of the features of Drew's description that suggests a public policy is this emphasis on uh, everyone having value, taking advantage of what they can bring, and a focus on mutuality, not just the provision of support. Uh, that's been one of the misunderstandings about loneliness. It's been thought that they're alone, uh, put them with others, or give them support and they won't be lonely. Uh, if that were the case, uh, patients in hospitals who could press a button and f- receive support uh, wouldn't be lonely. But um, th- that's, in fact, not the case. It's right. not sufficient. And it goes back to the village, as you suggested. Uh, we survived and prospered as a species because of mutual aid and protection. And so just receiving support isn't what our brains have evolved to do. It's to both give and receive. That's what makes you feel like you're part of a community. And so the emphasis on mutuality in these social programs and these public policies uh, is incredibly important. Uh, What we've seen across time is school budgets have become stressed. We've reduced extracurricular activity. And so those opportunities for students to get involved in, in events that would would teach them the skills of community service and mutuality uh, have have diminished over what uh, was the case just a few decades ago. And one public policy implication is to start turning that around, dealing with older adults who are especially vulnerable to, to isolation becoming chronic. Uh, similarly, uh, to focus on what they can bring to the community, not simply what the community can give to them. That mutuality uh, turns out to be quite critical. Hmm. John Cassioppo is a psychology professor and director of the Center for Cognitive and Social Neuroscience at the University of Chicago. And Dhruv Kumar is a contributor to the New York Times. He's also a physician at New York Presbyterian Hospital. Thank you so much to both of you. This was a really interesting conversation. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Only the lonely. On our website, we've got more about the health implications of loneliness, plus an amazing graphic that shows who we spend our time with on a daily basis as we age. That's at innovationhub.org. There goes my heart.